Well, if you know anything about guitar or bass amplifiers, then you know that the volume only goes up to 10. And some of you already know where I'm heading with this. All the knobs on these amplifiers only go up to 10. So the maximum uh, volume level is set at 10. And for you smart people who are already aware I'm going, if you know anything about the movie, this is Spinal Tap, then you know that one scene where Nigel, the guitarist, explains to the documentary filmmaker that their guitar amplifiers actually go up to 11. So here's a little snippet of the dialogue as Nigel explains to Marty, the documentary filmmaker, how their amplifiers go all the way up to 11 and not 10. Nigel says, this one is very special because if you can see, the numbers all go to 11. Well, Marty says, well, why don't you just make 10 louder and make 10 the top number? And there's this long pause and Nigel says, these go to 11. Psalm 33 is kind of like Nigel Tunfell. Psalm 33 wants you to turn your amp up to 11. Psalm 33 is telling you today, turn your awe amp up to 11. Psalm 33 wants you to be in awe of Jesus. Listen, Jesus loves you. I mean, can you believe that? I can't. (laughs) Jesus loves you. He forgives you. And that is good news. And he loves this preacher. I mean, Jack Miller said, if God can love a preacher, he can love anybody. Listen, if Jesus loves me, trust me, he can love you. I was talking to some people yesterday and invited them to church. And I said, you know what? You are more than welcome at Grace. I said, they let me come in so anybody can get in the doors. So you know what? Jesus loves you today in spite of what you did yesterday. And so that should turn your awe amp up to 11. Psalm 33 wants you to be in awe of him, to marvel at Jesus, to be filled with wonder, to be astonished, to be flabbergasted, to just be awestruck. When's the last time you were really and truly awestruck at the gospel? That God loves you and forgives you. Psalm 33 will provide you with many reasons to turn your awe amp up to 11. It's kind and generous that way. You got to love a psalm that does that. It makes it easy for us to be mesmerized by Jesus because of what it tells us about him. The reality of living in a, false, in a fallen world is that our hearts are always captured by something. In fact, that's how God made us. God made us this way to have our hearts being captured by something. It's a good thing. We are hardwired by God to be mesmerized, hardwired by God to be mesmerized, to be in awe of Jesus. And just think about what God gave us to help us be in awe of him. He gave us eyes and ears and a nose and fingers and taste buds and a nervous system and a brain and a heart and a soul or a spirit. All of these things God graciously gave to us so that we could, in fact, taste and see 
that the Lord is good. God created this wonderful world just by speaking a sentence. I love that. And he purposely front-loaded this world with all kinds of wonderful things for us to enjoy. All with the express purpose of causing us to be in awe of him. But sin has hijacked our hardwired hearts, and now it threatens to distract us from the glory of Jesus. And the sad reality is that all too often, because we are sinners, we stand in awe of everything but Jesus. In his goodness, God gave us all these good things in creation that we could really enjoy. Listen, he really wants us to enjoy his gifts, the world. But we often just stop right there. We simply enjoy his gifts without thinking about the creator, the giver. And when we do that, we are on a slippery slope to idolatry. And that's why Psalm 33 is in the Bible, to give you back your awe, to show you the heart of God and to recalibrate your heart so that you are mesmerized by Jesus once again. So turn to Psalm 33 in your Bibles. We're continuing in our series, All the Paths of Yahweh. And what we'll see in Psalm 33 is that awe of God, being in awe of him, is actually what will enable us to wait on the Lord in those seasons where we find ourselves desperate for an answer to prayer. We're waiting on God to intervene, waiting on him to do something. So it's being in awe of God, who he is, what he does for his people. That is what will actually keep you from losing your mind as you have to wait and wait and wait and wait and wait on the Lord. And sometimes that's what discipleship looks like, isn't it? Wait and wait and wait and wait and wait and wait upon the Lord. Not just wait upon the Lord. Sometimes it's wait and wait and wait and keep waiting and wait and wait and wait some more upon the Lord. Okay, Psalm 33, look at verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. Shout for joy in Yahweh, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to Yahweh with the lyre. Make melody to him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. I just read that in a Baptist church. Think about that. Now, we don't know who wrote this psalm, but you got to love how he starts out. Shout. Um, This is no quiet song. This is uh, no subdued worship service. This is not hushed praise. Praise Yahweh. This is not prim and proper and decently and in order. It's rowdy. It's turn the amp volumes up to 11 kind of church. It's shout for joy in the Lord. And the psalmist gives us two reasons why we should shout for joy. I mean, you got to love a songwriter who gives you reasons why you should do what he tells you to do in his song. We should be loud with our joy, with our worship, with our praise, because number one, we are righteous We are upright. We are godly. And number two, because praise is fitting. 
The reason we should shout for joy in Yahweh is because we are upright, the psalmist tells us, meaning God has declared us righteous in his eyes. And you do realize you had nothing to do with that whatsoever, right? God declared you righteous. He made you alive in Christ. He regenerated you by his spirit. You didn't do any of that. You were a rebel living in sin, living in defiance to Jesus, unable to come to God. And he decided and he determined to save you. And he imputed Christ's righteousness to you and he credited his own perfect son, Jesus, with your sin. That's why we are righteous. And guess what? We didn't deserve or earn a lick of it. And that's why we should shout for joy in the Lord because we are free. It is for freedom. I just read it again this morning in Galatians 5.1. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. But we should also shout because it's fitting to do this. The appropriate response to God's grace is to praise him, to give thanks. It's, it's a fitting thing to do. Praise is like an outfit that just fits right. It's befitting that we praise. It's not weird. What would be weird is a church that doesn't sing. A church that doesn't praise a church unfamiliar with the heart of Christ. That sentence saddens me. How many churches there are in the world who are actually, even though they preach the Bible, they're actually unfamiliar with the heart of Jesus. And it doesn't affect what they do. Singing and praising is what we do. It's why half of our service is dedicated to it. It's why when we were told by a state mandate during COVID that we were not allowed to sing, that we sang anyway. Do you remember that? They sent out a big packet. You may not sing. Oh, yeah? Watch us. And we did. Why? Because we are a singing people and because our God deserves to be praised. The government cannot tell us to not sing. I mean, I guess they can, but we're going to sing, aren't we? We're going to obey Psalm 33. So praise and worship is fitting for a church for the people of God. The Dallas Cowboys lose in the playoffs. The church sings. That's fitting. That's life. It's what we do. Cowboys lose. Christians praise. Oh, I need to talk church discipline with that. whoever amen the... Unless you're amen in Christian's praise. Oh, that was Nate Watts, wasn't it? Philadelphia Eagles fan right there. Oh, we, we, we message each other back and forth all the time. He messaged me a few weeks ago and said, it's not too late to come on over to the Eagles camp. All right, that's forgiven because it's Nate. Anybody else who amens that? We got to talk. One of the reasons that we praise is because it helps Give us back our awe and wonder of Jesus. Awe of God leads to praise of God, which leads to awe of God, which leads to praise of God, and on and on and on it goes. Praise completes our enjoyment of God. 
And it reminds us of God's heart for his people. And it strengthens us. And it helps us to believe God's promises. Doesn't it help you to believe God's promises when you sing? We're just singing, you know, your forgiveness is like sweet, sweet honey on my lips. It's like, yes, I believe I'm forgiven. I I can taste it like honey on my lips. I am forgiven. Singing helps us. How many of you come in here on a Sunday morning, kind of down in the dumps, and then we start singing together and your heart is strengthened? That's happened to all of us, right? Probably many, many Sunday mornings, probably today. Why does that happen? Because singing recalibrates our heart to the heart of God, the heart of Jesus. And when that happens, we're ready to receive his promises. We're ready to receive the gospel. I heard an old preacher say this once. I I thought about it this morning. It was 30 years ago. I heard him say this in a sermon. I've never forgotten it. Praise is the plow that prepares the heart for the planting of the promises. Praise is the plow that prepares the heart for the planting of the promises. Now, he didn't say it that way. He said it this way. Praise is the plow that prepares the heart for the planting of the promises. It's stuck in my brain. I'm grateful for that man who's probably with Jesus now. That's one reason that the psalmist says that praise befits God's people. We praise God so that our hearts will be plowed and ready to receive God's heart, ready to receive the planting of his promises, especially as we learn to wait upon the Lord. And that's where Psalm 33 is heading at the end. So we have praise at the beginning of Psalm 33 because we need all the promises. So at the beginning of Psalm 33, we have praise, and then we have all these promises of who God is for his people in the rest of Psalm 33, and that helps us when we get to the end of Psalm 33 where we learn that we have to wait and wait and wait and wait upon the Lord. So this praise prepares our hearts to receive all the promises on the inside, uh, the, uh, the rest of Psalm 33, so that when we get to the end and we hear we have to wait upon the Lord, we're able to do that. We praise God, and that opens our hearts up to God's heart, It opens our hearts up to all that God is for us, and then it sustains us while we have to wait upon him. As that old preacher once said, praise is the plow that prepares the heart for the planting of the promises. And one way, and we can do this individually too, I know, but one way that we do this is in corporate worship here on Sunday morning. We give thanks to the Lord with our voices and our instruments. You do know what Psalm 33 is telling us, right? It's telling us that Jesus loves music. I love that Jesus loves music. Don't you love that Jesus loves music? Aren't you glad that Jesus created music? I love that one of the wonderful things that he has given us in this world is music. Where would we be without music? Where would we be without instruments? I don't even want to imagine a world without music. How dreadful. I mean, that's like the end of the world to me if there's no music. Here are a few great great quotes from Martin Luther. Um, 
the reformer, about music. He said, next to the word of God, the noble art of music is the greatest treasure in the world. Amen. He said, my heart, which is so full to overflowing, has often been solaced and refreshed by music when sick and weary. You've experienced that, haven't you? You've had a song lift your spirits? Then he said, for if you want to revive the sad, startle the jovial, encourage the despairing, humble the conceited, pacify the raving, mollify the hate-filled, what can you find that is more efficacious than music? Amen. The power of praise, the power of God-given music. Listen, God in his grace, because he is such a good, kind God, gave us music to enjoy. And then we also have music that we can sing back to him. And so we take instruments and melodies and words and we create songs that we can then sing and praise God with. I mean, when's the last time you thanked God for guitars and cellos and drums and bassoons and kazoos? When's the last time you thanked God for musical notes? I thought about that. When's the last time I thanked God for coming up with musical notes that when they're put in the right way, just work? When's the last time you thank God for artists and musicians who take instruments and notes and chords and melodies and lyrics and they bring it all together so that it resonates with your heart when you sing their songs to Jesus at church or when you listen to it on Spotify? When's the last time you thank God for Chet and company, for our worship band? You know, now would be a good time to let out a shout of joy in the Lord for those who lead us in worship, right? Yeah. How about that? A Baptist, a pastor of a Baptist church asked that Baptist church to get rowdy and let out a shout of joy in the middle of his sermon. Well, that's the heart of Psalm 33. Shout for joy in the Lord. Play skillfully. Sing a new song. And we always have reason to sing new songs because Jesus is always answering our prayers. He's always blessing us, always showering us with his goodness. We are a people who daily have reasons to sing new songs to the Lord. We can daily shout for joy. And sing new songs because his mercies are really new every morning. Listen, we are a singing people. We are a musical people. We have bands. We have choirs. This is what the church has always done. And one reason we sing and make music and shout for joy is because Jesus loves Bad people like you and like me. His heart actually moves out to and is drawn toward bad people to sinners. We sing because his love is everywhere. His love is like glitter. It's just gotten all over the place. You know what it's like. When glitter gets something, it just gets everywhere. And God's love is just like glitter. That's what the psalmist says. Look at verse 4. For the word of Yahweh is upright, 
and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of Yahweh. By the word of Yahweh, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear Yahweh. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. So we shout for joy and we sing and we play skillfully on guitars and pianos and drums because God's word is upright. The word of the Lord is upright. Athanasius, who was the bishop of Alexandria uh, in the 300s, said, whenever a man turns his gaze and he sees the Godhead of the word, he is smitten with awe. We are smitten with the God of the word because everything he does, he does in faithfulness and because he loves what is right and because he loves justice and because he is not detached from his creation, he is very much involved. And his steadfast love is all over the earth that he created. Think about what Psalm 33 is saying. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. I love that. You would think the world would be full of the anger of the Lord. Because we are bad people and we sin all the time. But it's the steadfast love of the Lord that is everywhere. In other words, his heart is everywhere. Wow. Who is this God? We have ruined his creation. It was good. It was perfect. He was thrilled. He got to the end. It was like, man, this is great. This is good. We ruined his creation with our sin, and yet it's his steadfast love that is everywhere. Not his anger. We live in a world full of God's loving kindness, a world that has expressions of his love, his heart all over the place, just like glitter. But Psalm 33 also gives us another reason to praise. It tells us that Jesus can gather up all the waters of the earth and put them in storage if he wants to. Let me ask you, when's the last time you tried to gather up water? A five-gallon water jug is heavy. When's the last time you picked up a five-gallon water jug? Jesus can lift all the waters of the earth and store them in a storage unit if he wants to. I mean, what power? That's why we praise him. Psalm 33 also gives us yet another reason that we sing. Because Jesus merely spoke and creation came to be. I mean, galaxies and universes and stars. We're still discovering these things, aren't we? Way out there. He simply uttered a few Let there be sentences, and then creation came to be. Think about that. A few sentences off the lips of Jesus ushered in this beautifully intricate world that we call home. He simply spoke creation into existence. Jesus said, let there be, and there were humpback whales and bearded vultures and Tulips and weeping willows and apple pie and coffee and bacon and oceans and mountains and volcanoes and tornadoes and clouds and stars and planets, galaxies and black holes. Just this last week, they 
were able to capture the audio, the sound a black hole makes. It was pretty creepy too, actually. But it sounded like it would be the soundtrack to like a horror movie or something. But that's the way God made it. And that's the sound it makes. I'm like, okay, must be beautiful to God. Amazing. Think about that. What a wonderful world that we live in. What a spectacular world full of all kinds of spectacular things that we get to enjoy every single day. And Jesus is behind it all. All day long, we are bombarded with opportunities to enjoy God's creation and then trace that enjoyment all the way back to God and then to glorify and enjoy him as our wonderful, giving, sharing, creative creator. We have numerous opportunities daily to glorify and enjoy God through what we taste and what we see and what we smell and what we feel and what we hear. This was God's good design in creation. This is the way that God designed it. He made us to take in these things and really enjoy them. Joe Rigney says, if we extend this divine endorsement of sight and taste, then here we see God enthusiastically endorsing our joy and delight in all sensible pleasures. That is, pleasures we receive through our bodily senses, pleasures that we see, smell, taste, touch here, provided they're enjoyed within the boundaries established by the giver of every good gift. Perhaps God could have done it another way. He might have made an immaterial world populated purely by spiritual beings. Infinite wisdom preferred stomachs. I love that sentence. Have you thought about that? It was Jesus' infinite wisdom. He said, I'm going to make them and they're going to have stomachs. Infinite wisdom preferred stomachs and tongues. And every combination of sour, sweet, salty, and savory that the chefs on the Food Network can discover. Because that's what they are doing. Discovering all the ways that God chose to communicate his goodness, his sweetness, even his bitterness to human palates. My guess is that it will take a while. The creation of food tongues and the human digestive system is the product of infinite wisdom knitting the world together in a harmonious whole the symphony of glory that sounds the triune being contains notes of corn salsa and sour patch kids of sweet tea bless you for that jesus and rye bread the kind that fills the belly the variety of tastes creates categories, and gives us edible images of divine things. We get to enjoy all this goodness that he's given us. It was created by Jesus when he simply uttered a few sentences. That should lead us to awe. As verse 8 says, Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. Now those that don't know Jesus need to be in fear of him because he is a holy God. And they will stand before him and give an account of their life. And if they've not placed their trust in Jesus, they will spend eternity in hell suffering for their sin and rebellion. But for those who have turned to Christ, we don't fear the Lord in the sense that we're afraid of him. It's this reverential awe. It's this, oh my goodness, I can't believe he loves me and forgives me. This is wonderful. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. In other words, when you put corn salsa on your burrito, 
at Chipotle or when you eat Sour Patch Kids, kids, or when you enjoy homemade sourdough bread dripping with butter, remember to turn your awe amp up to 11, to be in awe of Jesus and all the good things that he gives us to enjoy. Listen, the goal of the Christian life isn't to feel awesome about yourself. It isn't to feel like you're an awesome Christian who's faithful with your quiet times. The goal of the Christian life isn't to feel awesome about yourself. It's to be more in awe of Jesus. Psalm 33 knows our propensity to lose our awe and wonder. That's why it's in the Bible. Whoever wrote Psalm 33 knew how easy it was for the things of God to become too familiar to the people of God. They knew that we can all just get used to grace and not be awestruck by it anymore. That's the predicament of the human heart in a fallen world. But there's also another heart at work in this fallen world, namely the heart of God, and it's eternally persistent. Look at verse 10. Yahweh brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of Yahweh stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is Yahweh, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. Yahweh looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds... The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation, and by its great might it cannot rescue. Jesus knows all the plans of the nations. Nothing gets past him. He raises nations and politicians up, and then he turns around, and he can tear them down if he wants to. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. That word for plans is the word hearts in Hebrew, he, uh, thoughts in Hebrew. He, he knows the innermost thoughts of people. He can frustrate the thoughts of people. It isn't like Yahweh has to send out spies to get the secret plans to the Death Star like in Star Wars. Jesus can read minds. He knows the thoughts of all peoples, all nations, all politicians. There is nothing top secret that Jesus isn't keen on. So the counsel of God stands. Nothing can stop it. And not just his counsel stands. His heart stands forever too. The plans of his heart, Psalm 33 tells us, the affections of his heart go on forever. The heart of God for sinners keeps going on from generation to generation. That means when we become Christians, we get all of Jesus all of his heart, front-loaded at the, at the front. All of his heart, all of the time, for all of our troubles. All of God's stuff for all the stuff that we have to deal with in a fallen world. The plans of his heart bursting forth and going on forever and forever. Dane Ortland says, picture a dammed up river, pent up, engorged, ready to burst forth. That is the kindness in the heart of Christ. The creation of the world and the ruinous fall into sin that called for a recreative work undammed the heart of Christ. And Christ's heart flood is how God's glory surges further and brighter than it ever could otherwise. 
The creation of the world was to give vent to the gracious heart of Christ. And the joy of heaven is that we will enjoy that unfettered and undiluted heart forevermore. Yes, the joy of heaven is that we will enjoy the unfettered and undiluted heart of Jesus forever. The heart of Christ for us how he really feels about us, how he really feels about you right now, with everything that's going on in your heart, the heart of Jesus for us is the surging river sweeping over us. It's his kindness, his gentleness, his favor, his grace. That's his heart to all generations. and That's his heart to us, his people, the church. And then there it is, right there. I mean, smack dab in the middle of all the plots and plans of the politicians and nations is the church, God's people, the people of his heritage. And we're safe and secure. Hey, we're still here, y'all, right? (laughs) Some people thought COVID would be the, the, the end of the church. Hey, look around. We're still here, aren't we? Ever since Genesis 3, the church has been here and nations and leaders come and go off the scene and guess who is still here? We are. Remember that the next time you stick your toe into politics and start getting stressed out because we ain't going anywhere. And the reason why we're still here is because the Lord sees all and yet he stoops to help his people. Psalm 33 tells us he is our strength, our shield. That means weapons are useless. Warships cannot save. Armies cannot save. The war horse is useless. In fact, it's a lie. In verse 17, the war horse in Hebrew is called a lie. It's a lie. The warship is a lie. It's false. But what hope there is in Jesus for those who praise him. Look at verse 18. Behold, the eye of Yahweh is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for Yahweh. He is our help and our shield. For our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Yahweh, be upon us even as we hope in you. Psalm 33 wants you to know Jesus is watching over your life right now. He is aware of everything that he is happening. He is working behind the scenes. Every detail, he sees it all. His eye is settled on you. David Pallison said, The Lord knows you. This reality is the single most important thing about you. You are his. That might be all you need to hear today. The Lord knows you. It's not so much that you know the Lord. He knows you. And everything that's going on in your life, everything that's going on in that little heart of yours, he knows. And you are his. Get that into your bloodstream today. See how it changes your heart and your life. But Jesus also has the power to deliver you from death. Death is no problem for Jesus. And that's why we wait for him. Because he is our help and our shield. He strengthens us and protects us. So we are glad because we trust in him. We trust his character. 
who he is and what he is like. That's what it means when the psalmist says, we trust in your holy name. We trust your character. We trust who you say you are in your word. We trust that about you. Even though everything in our life is screaming at us otherwise, we trust you. We trust your heart as our hearts are breaking. We trust his character, who he is, what he is like, and that enables us to wait. Of course, we don't like waiting for God, do we? Right? Tom Petty, the waiting is the hardest part, right? We don't like waiting. What's interesting here is that the Hebrew word for wait in verse 20 is not the word that we've seen a lot before in this series. That Hebrew word has the idea of twisting, and there is this sense of you're being twisted. It was used of like ropes twisting together. Sometimes you're waiting, and it feels like you're twisting. Your, your stomach's all tied up in knots. This is not that word. This word in verse 20, comes. it actually comes from the Hebrew root word for, get this, fishing. <laughs> Think about that. The ancient Hebrews described waiting with the same word that they used for fishing. Why? Because that's what you do when you're fishing, right? You wait, and you wait, and you wait, and you wait. And you have to wait a lot as a disciple too, so get used to it. But the God you wait on is good, so that you know he's doing good things for you while you wait. Understand this, the heart of Jesus is at work to bring you good while you wait for him. The heart of Jesus is at work to bring you good while you wait for him. And that's why you can wait with hope because his heart is at work for you because his steadfast love is upon you. And you know what? That persistent heart of God ought to make you want to praise him, which is where we started Psalm 33. It ought to restore your awe and wonder while you're waiting. It ought to make you want to stand up and sing the doxology. I'm not going to ask you to do that right now. I mean, I'll let you be rowdy earlier, okay? Once is enough. We're Baptists. It ought to make you want to stand up and sing the doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures here below. Praise him above, ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Psalm 33, when you get through reading it, ought to lure the doxology out of you. That's what theology is supposed to do. Theology, when you learn things about God, like you learned about in the middle of Psalm 33, theology always does its best work when it leads to praise and worship, when it leads to awe and adoration. Theology should always restore our awe of God. Theology and doctrine is always at its best when it includes doxology, when it leads to worship, when it leads to praise, when it leads to awe, when it cannot speak without at the same time worshiping, praising, and shouting for joy. So you're supposed to get to the end of Psalm 33 and then go right back to the beginning and praise him. Systematic theology books and books about doctrine should close each chapter with the words to a hymn because that's where theology should lead us to worship, not to online debating people about uh, superlapsarianism or infralapsarianism. You can look that up. I just told you that so you'd think I was really smart, by the way. 
I'd have to look up the definitions again. I mean, I, I know, but that's where theology is supposed to lead us, to worship, to awe, to wide-eyed wonder. And sermons should end that way too. Preachers have a responsibility to preach in such a way that cause their hearers to want to stand up and shout for joy in the Lord, and not because the sermon's over, right? Some preachers preach and people stand up and shout for joy because the sermon is over, because that guy finally shut up, right? Preachers should preach in such a way that people leave saying, not what a great sermon, but instead leaving and saying, what a great Savior, That's what I want for you. Preachers are supposed to give people their awe back. That's my job. I hope I did mine today. I hope you got your awe of Jesus back. If I didn't, I'll meet you right back over that, that door, and I will tell you to your face that you're a sinner, and you're bad, and you do bad things, and you're a scruffy looking nerf herder, but Jesus still loves you. And I'll tell you that you're forgiven. And hopefully then you'll get your awe back. We're about to stand and sing. So I hope you turn your awe amp up to 11. Let's pray. Father, to fear you isn't to be afraid of you. Rather, it's to live in knee-buckling awe of every good thing you've done for us in Christ. Restore us today to childlike awe and joy. Rescue us from familiarity. Jesus, may our focus be our awe of you and not what we ought to do for you. May our astonishment, awe, and adoration of you be 100 times greater than our outrage at anything or anyone. And Holy Spirit, Please intensify our desire, awe, our affections for Jesus. Rescue us from all the substitute saviors we create and cling to. May we be so in awe of your glory and grace today that we'll have little energy left for whining, criticizing, and self-pity. In Jesus' name, amen.